Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Linda Puglio, CEO and founder of Dishcraft Robotics. Dishcraft Robotics is developing robots for commercial kitchens. And it really does sound probably what you're imagining, right? So if you look at a cafeteria or a restaurant today, there's a number of things that have to happen after dishes are used and then reintroducing them back onto the floor, right? They have to be organized, stacked up, either put through some type of hand washing process or through a dishwasher. There's a lot of things, labor, effort, supplies that go into that process. And Dishcraft Robotics automates almost that entire process, right? They take plates that are used at restaurants and cafeterias. They put them through this really cool kind of futuristic robotic workflow and then bring them back to cafeterias. And recently, they also launched a to-go container solution that takes kind of the same workflow that you see in cafeterias and introduces it into restaurant chains so that restaurant chains can start introducing reusable solutions and products to their customers. So now, if I use a reusable container from a restaurant chain, I can bring it back, and instead of the restaurant taking on the burden of cleaning it, Dishcraft handles that. And in the episode, Linda and I'll discuss how exactly the Dishcraft story starts. Founding Nito Robotics, the world's second largest consumer robotics company, which she raised over $12 million for and ultimately helped exit in July 2008. A series of other startups that predates the Dishcraft journey, the impact potential for a company like Dishcraft, and of course, the one big idea rotting away in her idea graveyard. Folks, Linda is an absolute boss, and this episode, I'm telling you, does not disappoint. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Linda Puglio, CEO and founder at Dishcraft Robotics. Linda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, Linda, let's start with the basics. What is Dishcraft? Dishcraft's a robotic and automation company, and we're focused on providing a sustainable dishware delivery service for businesses, hotels, schools, restaurants, and caterers. Got it. And just to paint a picture around the problem set you're solving, how does Dishcraft solve one of these kind of core subcategories of the broader climate problem set? We're, we're offering a daily delivery of clean, sanitized dishware, meaning plates, bowls, cups, utensils, and reusable takeout containers. And they can be washed and reused hundreds of times. And we're doing this through robotics, which is using sensors, cameras, machine learning, innovative mechanics to autonomously sort and scrub and inspect and wrap dishware. So our robot is only using really small amounts of cold recycled water. It's far more environmentally friendly than traditional dishwashing methods. We can even spot the smallest particle invisible to the naked eye and deliver consistently clean and sanitized dishes. So we're eco-friendly and our delivery trucks even run on biodiesel. Oh my gosh. And I got to say, I'm looking at your previous experience here because I think you're probably the first person I've ever met that's tinkering in this space specifically and adding a letter a layer of sophistication that at least in my imagination um, has failed to exist so if we actually rewind back and we take a look at what you were doing before dishcraft 
help us help us connect the dots. How your previous experience and chapters of professional life lead up to the dishcraft eureka moment. Sure. So I had previously co-founded a company called Nito Robotics, which was doing intelligent floor cleaning. And someone from the restaurant industry, that company was actually very successful and exited. And someone from the restaurant industry learned about that and said, look, I really want to know if automation can solve the restaurant industry's dishwashing problems because he was just losing staff. It was really high churn. The wages were increasing and it wasn't solving his problems, both from an environmental standpoint and even from a labor efficiency standpoint. And I was really fascinated, but really it was, he reached out to me five times and that caught my attention because he was just very persistent. So I just, and I love food. So I started to work in different restaurants because I wanted to understand the problem myself. And I found that it was universal. It didn't matter if you were a casino or a mom and pop pub down the street. They all really were like, hey, please help me. The reason why it hadn't been handled yet was it was a very challenging, difficult problem from a robotic standpoint. So it took years and years of development on our side, but I knew that we could make a game changer here. All right. This is so freaking cool because, again, the when you look at just the surface area of what interests people, and I'm looking at even your course of study, right? You got your BFA with honors in fine art from University of Michigan. So did you start tinkering in robotics and mechanical design in your early years? Was this a late stage sense of fascination? When did that first inkling of mechanical design and product development interest start to manifest in your life? Well, there were a couple of things. When I was at University of Michigan in my sophomore year, I went over to China. And as an artist, you loved watching how things get made because your whole experience is to create. And when I was in Asia, you could see things getting made from start to finish. And so I always loved that aspect. When I left school, I became an art director for a manufacturer, so continued the path to getting things created and made, mostly for Fortune 500 companies as um, doing private label design. And then I really wanted to start my own company, and I figured, where else to start (laughs) but Silicon Valley, because that's where other entrepreneurs were. Mm -hmm. And so I came out here in 2004 and met my co-founder for Nito Robotics. And I had never done hardware robotics before, but the two of us to solve problems and he had a hardware background and that's how I earned my chops on robotics. Wow. And so for the listeners, uh, Linda's definitely being humble here. because You can see Linda and her co-founder, they raised over $12 million for Anita Robotics. It became the second largest consumer robotics company. And then obviously patented a bunch of technology there, exited the company successfully. And then I see after that, you kind of go through a slew of really interesting chapters. At one point, the COO of an innovative baby bottle company, and then consulting on various startups. The next one in this journey before Dishcraft that's super interesting is Mahout. Right? You're the CEO and founder of this company. Casual gaming meets e-commerce. What does that mean? What we were trying to do, people were playing so many games online. And we had the idea of, could you incorporate 
game tiles that were actually product so that big brand companies could enable engagement with their customers and they could then win rewards on those products by playing the game. And I learned a ton. Ultimately, that company was not successful, but I learned a lot about product market fit. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me because an example of how I see something like this coming to life within the last week, a company called Magic Spoon Cereal. I don't know if you're if you've heard of them, but they create this really fun cereal kind of reinvented for adults. Low sugar, high protein, keto diet, blah, blah, blah. And I have heard about them. Yeah, delicious, by the way. But they just launched this ad and it's a word puzzle. So they have some announcement that's coming out tomorrow or the next day. And they unveil this word puzzle. And if you can figure out what the hidden word is, you get a discount towards whatever this upcoming product is. So in, in many ways, that was, in my opinion, a really well-executed campaign that definitely intrigued me. I, I spent however many minutes trying to solve this. And then obviously, if I crack it and I get a reward, there's probably a pretty high likelihood that I convert into a customer. So out of curiosity, what did you, why wasn't their product market fit with Mahout? Sure. So individual campaigns, for example, we did a campaign with Bonobos and it was wildly successful for that one campaign. Mm -hmm. In fact, I started to feel bad because I had some college students that said they were so addicted that they would play three days in a row and, <laughs> and you know, then they were crushing to like try to get their papers in on time. <laughs> Where we struggled was to get enough brands on the platform at the same time to convert the Bonobos game player over to say another brand. And so I think that if we had managed to get hundreds uh, of brands and a big audience, it would have been great, but it just, it took us too long to get there. And I mean, people tell me starters fail either because the founder loses interest or you run out of money. And ultimately, we just didn't have the depth of, of capital in order to keep it going uh, mm. the period of time that we needed for consumer play. Got it. And interestingly, I mean, I tell you, people, if you guys just do a search on Linda Puglio on LinkedIn, you can tell that when one door closes, the other one was already in the works because you could see uh, instructor at Stanford University advising early stage startups. But right around the time, then Mahout closes down, Dishcraft opens up shop. So if we rewind back to those early days, did the first few years of Dishcraft look purely like product dev? How long did it take you to introduce this version one into existence? Well, the product we have in the market now is probably the third version of the robot. It mm -hmm took years of research. The very early days was mostly understanding the market and where did we want to play and how best to deploy this. And so we spent a ton of time working in kitchens ourselves. So I worked in, like I said, casinos earlier, I'd mentioned, and pubs and restaurants. And I tried, I actually even tried to get a job at Olive Garden, but I was rejected. What? So. <laughs> it turns out it's surprisingly hard. So anyway, we, we really wanted to understand and talk to our customer and develop something that they wanted. And what we landed on while in parallel to developing the technology was 
what is the least frictionless way to deliver this, which mm -hmm. ultimately became Dishcraft Daily, where we delivered as a service, much like linen service. Mm -hmm. And so as you arrived at this as the manifestation of that realization, that eureka moment, who do you think this service is for? What's the sweet spot on the customer type that uses Dishcraft? Well, actually, we have really broad appeal right now. Mm -hmm. uh, we started with high volume cafeterias because we were in the Bay Area and there were so many tech companies here. And so we were servicing those cafeterias. But since then, we have expanded both the product and the types of wares that we offer. And so now we are about to pilot with restaurants, but we also have been serving hotels and Pretty much anyone that has an interest in a more efficient service and sustainability because we save on water, power, uh, waste, they're all interested in it. So it's been glorious for us because we've brought appeal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, one of the key learnings over the last few years of, as I've really become obsessed in food and different solutions here is just the amount of waste that manifests across restaurant, industry, cafeteria, and home. And I think over the last year, at least pre-COVID, there was a lot of very interesting solutions that were trying to innovate in the reuse space. Right here, a frequent guest that we've had on the show, Just Salad. Right, Just Salad, like big pioneers of the reusable bowl, um, one of the more successful reusable programs in the US, if not the world. But Broadly speaking, it feels like there's been a, a lot of hesitance to adopt a model like this. And there's, it seems like a, a lot of restaurants and chains are actually defaulting to a uh, to-go solution, something that's a little bit more convenient for the customer that people can return and get maybe a couple cents back on the deposit or some permutation of that model. So I'm curious, how does your to-go container offering look today? Sure. So we're basically offering reusable containers and we offer it the same way that we offer Dishcraft Daily ceramic wares, where we drop off clean containers for the chef to plate. They deliver those either through delivery or at the restaurant on site. Uh, sometimes if there's outdoor dining. And those containers come back to us and go into containers. We pick them up and then we bring them back to our centralized dishwashing hub, wash them, and then rinse and repeat, do that same thing every day. And our goal really is there's, look, there's over 560 billion disposable plates, cups, and containers that are thrown away in the U.S. each year. And that's not sustainable. And so if we can find a really great way to solve that problem, why wouldn't people adopt it? It's better for the planet. It's better for them. And the thing that I, I love about this too is it really does integrate with cons consumer expectation. I think what I've noticed is anything that adds a bit of frustration or friction when it comes to, to interactions between merchant and consumer like this, it's just, it's super expensive. It's heavy. It, it really struggles on the adoption side of things, but this feels like the model that's going to win. I wonder, in your perspective, 
what do you feel like has the highest potential of success? Is it a product that a consumer owns, let's say a bowl, for example, that they then bring to multiple restaurants? Is it the, the converse where the restaurant has a reusable solution that they, you drop off in a trash, it gets cleaned up? Or is it going to be a materials breakthrough, right? Where it's people just do what they do now, but now the products are made from, I don't know, seaweed or algae, something that biodegrades really fast. What, what do you think will be the winning solution among well, the three? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we believe it's a reusable solution that the restaurant provides. Mm-hmm. I think that asking a customer to remember to bring back their wear from home and get and asking the restaurant on the spot to wash it is very difficult and that creates friction. We looked at the other one as could we create a plate that could be reused, munched up and reused in terms of material choice. And I think that while it's possible, it's, it's very, it will take a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very impressed with Just Salad, by the way, because we, we have talked to them. And there's others, but the, there are other examples that we know already work in the way that our model works in terms of Simply Good Jars. There's a company out of the East Coast and they send their jars out to the world and they have such a high percentage of return because the customer knows based on the labeling that this is good for the planet. A portion of charity is donated to feed a meal in order to return it. And people go to massive lengths to return that jar when they know they're doing something good. And so we think that this is the solution. We think that we wanna expand on what they've done but offer it to a wide range of restaurants and food services. Wow. I, I first discovered Dishcraft. Actually, I think I, it was a post that you made on LinkedIn. I think it was either a recent funding announcement or a milestone, which is amazing. I'd love to hear if we were to zoom out and put Dishcraft's impact in perspective. Can you give a sense to our listeners, how many partners are you working with today? What are some of these milestones that you're proud of, maybe from a a waste reduction standpoint? Just to give a sense of kind of where Dishcraft is in their journey today, and then the moonshot. Like what can people get really excited about when Dishcraft scales up over the next few years? Sure. One of the things I'm super proud of is one of our first deployments was at a firm and in, the, in San Francisco, it's a financial services firm. And I had asked the head of facilities, what was the biggest impact you had on sustainability? Because I was really curious of what they were working on that I could potentially bring back to my own office that we could do. And they said, well, frankly, it was dishcraft. The amount of waste, uh, single-use cups that we eliminated there and the amount of excitement that we generated from the employees was, it was proof that what we were doing was on the right path. And our ultimate goal is to eliminate single-use disposable dishware, which accounts for a huge percentage of trash on our streets, in nature, in our oceans. And it's taking massive amounts of fossil fuels to manufacture single-use dishware. And so if we can get close to our zero-waste dishware goal by scaling up our robotic dishwashing, dishwashing service to every major city in the world, it's not impossible and it's so gratifying. And so one hub can wash 50,000 meals per day. So for me, it's just a matter of having our company create many more dishwashing hubs all around the world. Wow. I mean, how could you not get pumped to get onto a journey like that? 
I, I'm wondering because this this one feels like that type of thing when you look to uh, Moonshot Company in five years, like it's the perfect harmony of purpose, profit, like great business. Is there a future you think where you explore a franchising model, like empower? Oh. Uh huh. Yeah, we're so interested. We've toyed with that because we think that will get us uh, across the globe much faster. And so we definitely are, are intrigued by that. I mean, it sounds like to me, if, if you are either an aspiring operator or have a couple at bats under your belt, it, this one to me feels like, again, it, it, as long as you have the technology infrastructure that y'all have developed, what a great way to service a community of people that you probably already have relationships with. If you've lived in Boston for years and years, your family lives there, it's probably a pretty high likelihood that people who work there, other restaurants that are local there, I just, I, I would be very bullish to that opportunity under the, the, the Dishcraft umbrella. Yeah, it's super exciting. I mean, I, I remember I had a customer that we were pitching, a potential customer. And they're like, hey, if I had a million dollars, I would invest in what you're doing today. <laughs> Me personally. It was, it's so fun. I mean, it's really great to develop interesting technology and do something that's great for the world. Mm -hmm. I want to segue to your kind of broader take on the industry at large. As someone who's had uh, multiple successful at bats in the Valley, probably sees a lot of what's going on from early stage as an advisor to them, late stage with your colleagues. I would just love to hear what are maybe one or two shout outs to other companies or even research projects that you're familiar with that you think our listeners should take note of? Well, I'm very on the sustainability front right now. So a couple of the companies that I really like I am personally a customer of Grove Collaborative and it's a, it's a, they're selling household essentials that are good for us and the world. And I've been super happy with that service and I love their CEO too. I like Returnity. They're very similar to us. They're trying to do reusable shipping packages. So for example, if you're a customer of Rent the Runway or ThreadUp, they're container that you get or the shipping package itself is returnable and reusable. And so that's great for us and the planet. Ooh. I also like smarter sorting. They have a system that's providing granular data to retailers so that they can make the decisions with the unsellable items, meaning how they can get returned to the manufacturer, be donated, recycled. And so it's resulting in much more environmentally sustainable choices. Interesting. I got to say, I, I, so I've never heard of Returnity, but it's a problem area that's fascinated me for quite a while. I mean, you, <laughs> the amount of, when you look at the uptick of e-commerce, you get all these cardboard boxes and I've been trying, I mean, I've, I've been thinking through what is the solution? One solution could be just buying local, going to a store, but as spending shifts online in big ways, obviously it, we're not going to see an end to packaging like cardboard. So Returnity is super intriguing to me. I, I wonder, is it Loop where Loop does this with Haagen-Dazs? They made like an uh, aluminum pint of ice cream. They do it with Tropicana. So is the Returnity packaging kind of like an upscale, really durable package? Exactly. It's 
they have soft sided so you can get bags and then they have hard sided boxes and you simply return it and it is coated with a very safe material so that delivery drivers aren't at all worried about picking it up because they know that they're not going to have any contaminants. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we started to explore grocery delivery and so we're talking to them about doing a custom package for us. But it makes sense because if you can do it with dishes, you can do it with packages. And we get so many Amazon deliveries every day. And wouldn't it be wonderful if someone like Amazon, who can make an influence in the world, changes to a reusable package? Wow. I I wonder how it plays into the economics. Because part of it is that if you're selling, let's say, a a Tumblr or or noon supplement tablets, retail for $6.95, $9.95. So on one hand, maybe potentially you reduce your total cost of goods because now you're, you don't have to keep rebuying new volume. But I, my hunch is, is that the cost per package is probably a lot higher. So I wonder like what's the sweet, rent the runway has got to be perfect because the average dollar value for those products is pretty high. And so it probably nets out pretty well. And it, just because the beauty of the rent the runway model. Do you, I don't know if you, this might be going beyond kind of the scope of this convo, but I'm curious to see, maybe, I wonder if it's cost prohibitive for certain brands or if it's a, or if it's just a no brainer. If it's just, hey, you have your packaging forever that you can repurpose with your SKUs 10, 50, 100 times. It works just like us where it is cost effective as long as you're getting the, the container or the box back. Mm-hmm. And so I think if, it would be prohibitive if no one buys into the model of returning. But I know that they've been working with some big consumer packaged good brands and it's working and it, everyone's delighted both from the customers themselves because they've been complaining about the amount of waste that they're throwing out, the companies that are purchasing the returnity package. And then obviously it's a win for returnity as well. Mm-hmm. Linda, I want to segue to kind of my, the last two questions of the interview the first of which has to do with the moonshot for Dishcraft. And we talked a bit about what the future might look like if you can have Dishcraft hubs in every major city. My question for you is twofold. A, what is the biggest obstacle or roadblock for Dishcraft at the moment? Capital, people, any of the above. And I guess two, beyond what exists today, are you able to tease what does the future look like for Dishcraft in terms of new solutions? Is it is the product suite that exists today kind of the full package and it's a matter of scaling the model to new cities? Are there other new solutions in the pipeline? So I'm curious, what are, what are your thoughts on, on, on 1A and 1B? Sure. Right now, we have a solution that we know works and we need to scale it. And so for us, it is bringing in enough capital and the right partners so that we can get across the country in a shorter period of time. On the product roadmap, we have a toehold in doing wares, but we know that dishwashing as a whole is a enormous problem. And so we want to keep expanding the product line to handle many more wares, to handle Pots and pans is an obvious one. Uh (laughs) We do have a couple of small experiments going on, but we really want to provide as a business line everything to do with dish and dishwashing. 
Mm-hmm. And just to unpack that a bit further, because I, what I'd love to do before we segue to the last question, just to paint a picture of what this robotic machine looks like. So today, right, it's optimized for plates. If we were giving someone a Dishcraft 101 as to how the technology works from maybe pickup through cleaning and then fulfillment back to the cafeteria or restaurant, what does that technology chain look like? So we think of the industry modularly. And so right now we're handling plates and bowls. We have a separate robot that can handle flat and inspect and sort flatware and another one that in fact can dispense. So we're looking at every single item that has to pass through the kitchen and what is the best way to put technology towards it for an efficient solution. So it's everything from how things are collected to how they're served, how they're washed. And so it's unlikely that there's one end-all be-all robot, although we do have ideas for improving the existing robot, of course, to make it even better and a smaller footprint. Mm -hmm. But I think it will be a series of robots and simply technology doesn't all have to be robotic to get to solve a customer's problem that work together really beautifully to solve the whole. Wow. It's so funny. Like in my mind, I I used to work at this restaurant called Tweeds in Worcester, Mass, a little Irish pub. And I remember just going into the kitchen and just seeing just chaos and the amount of hands that touch and uh, just all the different processes that I think the, the layman or layperson wouldn't anticipate. And so now in my mind, repurposing that for just what I imagine. You get these like little ro- different robotics that are working in perfect tandem with each other, cleaning, heating, washing, moving. It's got to be just like, just zooming out for a second. It's got to be just super cool, right? For the robotic nerds in us, for the tech nerd in us. Do you ever just take a second and look at it like, wow, this is really neat what we've built. So the first day that we got just stacks and well, the very first uh, trials we did was with a party rental customer that would deliver stacks and stacks full of dirty dishes. I have never been as happy to see dirty dishes. (laughs) But what was really great is, so we hired dishwashers and and we trained them to be robot, dish robot operators. Mm -hmm. And one day I remember the robot was down and the, one of the dishwashers who was on staff that day went over to the engineers and he's, hey, you better fix this and fix this fast because it's, he did, had to then go back during that period of time to hand washing dishes the way a traditional dish room would. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to work with the robot because his job was much better. And so for me, that was so fun to have validation that what we're doing improved his life and mm-hmm. delivers this great result to a customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that to me is a taste and just a little glimpse into what I think people can look forward to with this perfect kind of marriage between new technology and everyday workflows. Just a kind of a beautiful combination of people and robot. And this one to me feels like one of those success stories that we should really be pumped about. Like we should be pumped about this. This is awesome. (laughs) thank you Linda I want to segue to my favorite question of every interview and it's around this notion of an idea graveyard and and we're probably alike 
in that you probably have a note on your iPhone with a, a list of ideas that you hope to one day get to. But for the time being, it's just sitting there getting cobwebs, spider webs. So my question for you is, what are one of these ideas that maybe one day you would love to work on if you had the time to do so, but for the time being, it's just rotting away in your idea graveyard? So, and this one has gone on for 15 years where I noodle on it, but I don't, I haven't solved it. I, and it won't be surprising when you hear about my background, but I really want a better garbage pail. So I, I think that the existing solution is terrible. I want something that's ergonomic, that can autonomously sort from the compostables to the, to the actual garbage to recyclable. And I want it to travel by itself and bring itself to the dumpster <laughs> instead of us picking up this big heavy bag that often breaks and having to drag it somewhere else. I just think there's a much better solution there. So I am really hoping someone solves it. If, if not, when Dishcraft exits, maybe that will be the next thing I work on. Linda, legit count me in on this. Uh, on a previous episode, I was just brainstorming on a- another problem area that's native to me. I live in apartment building here in New York City, and we have uh, garbage chutes on every floor. So right when we're done, there's a recycling bin for paper, another one for quote-unquote everything else, and then just a garbage chute for all of the trash that's non-recyclable. And I've, I've always wondered, uh, what will it take to incentivize composting at the individual level? Is it going to be another chute that we can just throw food down and compostable goods, much like a typical trash chute today? Is it going to be an in-home composting bin, kind of like those that exist today. I don't know if you've put any thought to that, but to me, composting feels like one of these really interesting opportunities that you could deploy from maybe a B2B to B to C angle, or maybe just creating a better consumer product. But anyways, what exists today is insufficient in many ways. Exactly. Um, I mean, I lived, so I'm with you on that because I lived in Manhattan for, you know, probably 10 years. And I, I experienced the, the throwing down those shoots and you never know where it lands. But, uh-huh. but even in my own home, like we, we have a compost bin. I mean, we bought these really fancy worms basically to help us with the process. And I'm trying this every day to, and it's not quite working as beautifully as I hoped. And uh-huh. so it's like, there's room for improvement everywhere. This has gotten, oh, Linda, I, I tell you, I could jam with you on this for a while. If I were to start a company, to me, that a great kind of wedge into the market, in my opinion, would be New York City apartment buildings. You probably have a, mat, you, you got a, a pretty adequate customer base per building. You probably wouldn't have to, I don't know much about what would you, what changes to infrastructure? Like, would you... Yeah. Is it, does it have to do with smarter, sophisticated sorting? Is it actually just like a dumb solution where you create a new chute that's designed for composting? That one probably feels like the the right approach. I don't know. Yeah, we agree with you. So initially there's inadequate sorting and I've actually spent a lot of time understanding about what happens to, because of our business, what happens Mm -hmm. to compostables. And The way the world exists today, 85% of compostables just never get composed due to lack of high temperature, 
composting facilities or inadequate sorting or um, non-biodegradable toxic chemicals that coat most of those items. And so much of it goes to landfill and it remains there for hundreds of years or worse yet, it lands up in our ocean. And so I think it has to start with a combination of how it's sorted as well as where it's disposed of. So those composting facilities need a smarter, more intelligent way to work. Mm -hmm. Linda, this has been an absolute pleasure. I I'd love to roll out the red carpet. Are there any final <laughs> call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. We really would love the world to call out and say, we don't want single-use disposables anymore, and that reusables is the safe, sanitary, great solution. And so the more people call and ask their restaurants and ask their offices and ask their hotels to do away with the waste and choose reusable, the better it is for the world. Linda, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you again for giving me a little bit of your afternoon. It has been such a pleasure and I can't wait for round two in a couple months, hopefully. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much. It was really a pleasure. All right, Linda, take care. You're the best. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you, we look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.